Hey everybody, welcome to Passing Judgment. It's a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between, and we have an important show today about breaking legal news. I'm your host, loyal law school professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong. Joe, what are we going to talk about today? What's the big breaking legal news? Hello, Jessica. We do indeed have a big story for all of you today. It involves a major development when it comes to abortion rights, but let's not bury the lead. Last night, a Texas law went into effect that essentially overturns the landmark Roe v. Wade decision, and by doing so, it makes abortion essentially illegal in the state of Texas. The law is called SB 8 and it specifically makes abortion illegal after six weeks. Now, six weeks is frequently before a woman knows that she is even pregnant. SB 8 has no exceptions in the case of rape or incest, and it provides a system by which Texans can win what amounts to a $10,000 bonus plus reimbursement for legal fees if they sue an abortion provider, as well as that could be anyone who helps a woman obtain an abortion, and that's a very key detail, and they win that case. So let's jump right in, Jessica. It seems like this case came out of nowhere, but that is obviously not the case. How did we get here? We got here starting in about May when Texas passed SB 8. And it is, as you described, a very restrictive abortion law, one of the most restrictive in the country. We have seen, and Joe, we've talked about that there have been a lot of restrictive abortion laws that have been passed and put on hold throughout the country in the last year. But this is certainly one of the most severely restrictive ones. And I think you gave the highlights here, which is that it would essentially ban abortions after six weeks, because that's when you can detect a fetal heartbeat. And it's also before a lot of women know that they are in fact pregnant. And it would provide these weird legal quirks that I know we'll talk about in more detail, that any individual can sue to enforce this, and that we're not just talking about suing abortion providers here. So it is really a sweeping law, and it it is, let's just take a moment, it is rather breathtaking that it is as we record this program, in fact, in effect, in Texas, the second most populous state in the country where there are 15 million women in that state. And we can lay this at the feet of both Texas and the Supreme Court, because sometimes, Jessica, the Supreme Court makes a major change in our laws by action, and then other times they do it by inaction. So can you tell us why in this case it's the latter, Jessica? Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of what makes today just so surreal and breathtaking, which is that In May, as we said, Texas passes this law. Immediately, abortion providers and others sue and say, no, this law is clearly at odds with current Supreme Court case law, the Roe case that we'll talk about more, the Casey case that we'll talk about more. But it is important for people to know right off the bat, there is no way to square this Texas law with the current Supreme Court case law. And so people sued right away. Litigation is still ongoing. There was going to be a hearing in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals that oversees litigation in Texas, and that hearing was canceled because of Hurricane Ida, although query as to whether or not it really needed to be canceled because the hearing was going to be in Austin, where Ida did not in fact hit. But all of the Fifth Circuit oral arguments were canceled on Monday. 
everybody who wasn't following the case quickly realized, oh my gosh, that means that in 48 hours on September 1st, this law will go into effect if the Supreme Court doesn't do something. So there's an emergency appeal that's filed to the Supreme Court and abortion providers say, look, Supreme Court, you have to push pause in order to retain the status quo because otherwise you're going to allow a law that, again, clearly contravenes current Supreme Court case law to go into effect. This was, as we said, it's an emergency appeal. It's on something that, Joe, you and I have talked about called the shadow docket, which is essentially where the court makes decisions without full briefings and oral arguments. And then the court did nothing. And Joe, I mean, this is just a rule of life, right? Which sometimes silence and doing nothing is the biggest action that you can possibly take. And so by doing nothing, it means that Texas's law, nobody paused it. It went into effect. And for the court, I mean, Joe, let's think about this for a moment. Roe v. Wade, this 1973 decision, perhaps the most controversial decision in recent history in the Supreme Court. We fought about it so hard for so long. And then for it to just to be essentially overturned silently by the court doing nothing, it, it's hard for me to overstate the practical implications for women in Texas and the legal implications for how the court just seemed to really cavalierly deal with what at least was, as of a few hours ago, a constitutionally protected right to obtain access to an abortion. So it's a long shadow of a shadow, Jessica. But let's talk about the nuts and bolts of the specific law, SB8. Why is this law different from other challenges to abortion rights? Yeah, this is such a good question because I said, you know, this is a severe restriction on abortion access because the current case law that we have right now is not actually the Roe case. We all talk about Roe, but in fact, as we've discussed on the podcast in the past, the current law is actually a 1992 case. It's called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in that case, they say we're upholding the, quote, essential holding of Roe, meaning there is a constitutionally protected right for women to have access to an abortion. But they changed the test. And what they said is states can prohibit abortions post-viability, which is typically around, let's say, 24 to 25 weeks. I am not a medical professional. But before viability, before the fetus can, in fact, live outside the mother's womb, then states can restrict access to an abortion as long as that burden is not undue. Now, Joe, you and I have talked about this before. What's the difference between a burden and an undue burden? It's whatever five members of the court say it is. So there have been plenty of cases that we've talked about on this podcast where states have implemented burdens and the court says, okay, it's a burden, but it's not an undue one. So let's be honest, there are plenty of states in this country where there are, in fact, really significant hurdles, I would say, to for women to obtain access to an abortion. But what makes this law different is that it basically cuts off access to an abortion after six weeks. That's clearly pre-viability. And therefore, that's why I said in the beginning, there's no way that the Texas law 
can live and be consistent with Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Those two things are just fundamentally at odds. And so that's really the nuts and bolts of SB8, what makes it different and what makes it just totally inconsistent with current case law. Now, there are some other peculiar things about SB8, Jessica. What about the $10,000 reward and the legal fees aspect of this law? Those seem peculiar to me. Yeah, it is peculiar because of a couple of quirks in the law. And one of them is that, and I know we'll talk about this more in a minute, that it's private individuals, not the government, who are suing to enforce SB8. And what do these private individuals get? If you, in fact, do file one of these suits and you're successful, you get at least $10,000 and the defendant, maybe it's an abortion provider, maybe it's somebody who drove a woman to obtain an abortion, maybe it's somebody who helped a woman fill out an insurance claim to get an abortion, that if you win against any of those defendants, then they have to also pay your attorney's fees. And so this punishment or reward, depending on how you want to view it, kicks in for every abortion that you would sue for. So it's not just suing one person. It's a, and it's, it feels so strange to say it, but it's like a per abortion penalty. And the important thing I think is that you can absolutely imagine and understand how that would have a chilling effect on anyone who would want to try and, for instance, drive a woman to an abortion clinic, that you're facing not just a $10,000 penalty, which in and of itself is significant, but you're also potentially having to pay the other side's attorney's fees, which can absolutely add up. Now, if the plaintiffs lose, if the individual who's suing loses, then they don't have to pay the defendant's attorney's fees. So everything about this Texas law is designed to really disincentivize anyone from trying to provide women with the ability to obtain an abortion after six weeks. All right, Jessica. And what about who can sue to enforce this law? Yeah. So I just kind of quickly alluded to this, but this is a really weird part of this law. And I think we might see a lot more of this, Joe. Now, the law essentially deputizes private individuals instead of the state of Texas to sue to enforce this law. So you can, as somebody living in Texas, say, I think that somebody either violated or intends to violate this law, and therefore I'm going to sue them. If I'm successful, I get, again, as we said, $10,000, and I get my attorney's fees paid for. This really upends our understanding of how these laws typically function. It basically you know, gives private individuals, it almost makes them like government prosecutors. And you know, if, if this law does, in fact, fully go into effect in the long term, then I think that we could see this being used more often. And you could see it being used in other situations. I mean, you could see a blue state saying, okay, um, we are going to allow any private individual to sue another private individual because we think they are, you know, example I heard this morning was we think they are owning guns in their home against the state's law. 
So we're going to empower private individuals to bring these suits. So you can see, you know, both sides using this basically private right of action to their benefit. And that seems a bit like a Pandora's box to me. But I have a question, Jessica. How far does this go or how far could it go? For example, could a San Antonio Uber driver who unwittingly dropped off a woman around the corner from an abortion clinic be liable to prosecution under SB8? Seems to me we're drifting a bit into McCarthyism territory here. So I don't know about the unwittingly, but because part of the law typically is you have to at least have an awareness that you might be violating the law. Now, having said that, this is a very broad law and purposefully so. So this potentially could include, and again, I'm saying potentially because we haven't tested this law yet, but imagine that you want to donate to Planned Parenthood. Imagine that you're an insurance company and you pay a claim for a woman who obtains an abortion. So it's not just what feels, I think, more direct to us, the Uber driver. It's also the insurance company. It's also the donor. Uh, There's a really broad swath of people who are potentially liable under this law. All right. So let's back up just a little bit. What does this situation tell us about how the court itself may vote on future challenges to abortion rights in other states? Yeah, this is such a good question. And I come back to something we just talked about, which is, and I still feel like I'm almost in a state of shock about how If you think about one case, if people know one case when it comes to the Supreme Court or they think about new Supreme Court justices, it's usually Roe and it's usually what's going to happen to Roe. And then the court just, again, I know I said it, but silently lets Roe slip away really shows us, Joe, I think what its view of Roe is. And it's a cavalier treatment. I mean, it's a just, it's a dismissive treatment. It's hard to see it any other way. And so what does this mean for other challenges? I mean, the short answer is, I think we know, well, I think we probably know where this court is going when it comes to other challenges. Now, we don't know exactly, you know, on a granular level, how the court's going to rule in every challenge. But this is a conservative court. And more than that, Joe, it's a court where conservative or liberal, you should look at Roe and Casey and say, all right, I don't like these precedents, but they're still on the books. And so we have to push pause on this Texas law. They didn't do that. Uh, I think that's part of the answer of where we're going for the the future challenges. All right, so let's back up even more, even farther into the atmosphere. Where does this law leave abortion rights at the federal level, Jessica? Do you foresee a time when a future challenge makes an abortion case illegal in every state? So I don't know. I'll back up for a minute and answer that question by talking about something that we've already discussed on the podcast a little bit, which is there is a challenge pending before the Supreme Court It deals with a law in Mississippi where abortions are essentially banned after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, that case is going to be scheduled for oral arguments sometime in the next, I think, about six months, and we'll have a decision on that case by June 2022. That's the case that we've all been looking at to try and determine what will the court do 
Will it overturn Roe and Casey? And frankly, that's what the court owes us, right? If you're going to overturn precedent, give us a reason. Don't just do nothing. That shouldn't be how our legal system works. But Joe, in answer to your question of the two Americas, I mean, we really have to look at that case. I think based on what's happened over the last, again, 24, 48 hours, I suspect that the court will uphold Mississippi's ban on abortions, essentially all abortions after 15 weeks. Now, that still would not allow Texas's law to go into effect. At that point, what that would just say to states is, okay, if you want to restrict abortions, then here's your new line. It's 15 weeks. Now, again, I don't know how this Mississippi case will be written. Uh, It could be a broad holding. It could be a narrow holding. But let's assume the court fairly kind of narrowly just upholds the Mississippi law. Then any other state can basically do exactly what Mississippi did. That will absolutely create, I think, a huge dichotomy for women in terms of what their experience is like. Do you live in a place like California where you can, without too many hurdles, obtain access to an abortion? Or do you live in a place like Texas or Mississippi where obtaining legal access to an abortion is incredibly difficult, particularly after 15 weeks? And then, Joe, you asked me, you know, could the court ever get to a place where they say no state can allow access to an abortion. That's the long-term fear of the pro-choice community. And and I do want to make sure that I'm clearly elucidating that there are two different things we're talking about. What we're talking about right now is how far can states that want to restrict access to an abortion go? This would leave in place the current laws in places like California, where we don't want to go further. We don't want to be more restrictive. But the next question could be, in the very long term, can any state provide access to an abortion? That's a different question. It's a longer term question. And I don't know what the answer to that would be. But that would obviously be a huge, huge decision, and it would really upend our understanding of states' rights, and it would be a huge sea change in this country in so many ways. But that's where we are in terms of the challenges, the two Americas, and where we could potentially go very long term. All right, Jessica, before we wrap up, I think it's worth revisiting the inaction aspect of this when it comes to the Supreme Court. And I'm talking about procedure here. Now, this is not meant to be offhanded, but is this a situation where the three more liberal justices lock themselves in their chambers because they've been outvoted by the six conservative justices? How does that work with the court when they decide to not take action on something like this? How is that determined? Is there a vote or how does that play out? Yeah, I'm going to kind of answer the question by saying, here are some possibilities. So when there's an emergency appeal, it typically will go to the justice in charge of that circuit. That justice is Justice Samuel Alito. And he has two choices. He can either act on his own or he can refer the question to the full court. My understanding right now is that we don't really know what happened. And if the question was in fact referred to the whole court, we don't know why we haven't heard from them yet. Um, Now, 
My guess, and this again is just really a guess, is that it's because there's a lot of really angry writing behind the scenes. Uh, because again, this is a hugely important controversial issue that has a real impact on real people. Uh, not yesterday, but today. I mean, today people are feeling the impact of this non-decision. So look, procedurally, Joe, I mean, I don't mean to not answer the question, but we just don't know what happened. I will flag for people who listen to this podcast later on that it is entirely possible we'll hear from the court later today, tomorrow, next week. But everything we talked about still holds true in the sense that this is still a court where they've allowed this law to go into effect, and that still has to be hugely troubling to members of the pro-choice community. All right, Jessica, thank you as always so very much. You're so good at making these complex topics relatable, and I know we'll keep following the story and update our listeners along the way. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having these conversations. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at InDepthDay, also at InDepthDay.com. You can find the podcast itself on Twitter at PassJudgmentPod and on Instagram at PassingJudgmentPod. As I said, thanks for listening and have a great day.